0: Today, if you did not know, is the fifth Sunday of the Tide season. Uh, it is this season of celebration and uh, recognizing the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, I'm really hoping that we have a cognitive awareness of the liturgical season that we are in because we were so locked into Lent and uh, now that we're in Easter, like we need to celebrate, okay? It's a 50-day party that we get a chance to participate in. And uh, I just wanted to be able to remind us of that. We live out of seasons. It is the calendar that helps orient us around the story of Jesus. Um, Easter tide goes from Resurrection Sunday all the way to Pentecost. It's 50 days. And over the last few weeks, we as a community at Emmaus have been looking at various snapshots of Jesus in the 40-day period before his ascension. So the 50-day period of Easter tide recognizes the time between resurrection Sunday and Pentecost. But Jesus spends 40 days with his disciples before he ascends to the right hand of the Father. And then there's a 10-day waiting period on the Holy Spirit. And we've been just looking at the reality that this new creation project has been launched. Jesus is alive. He is in bodily form. But what did he say and what did he do and what did it look like in this period of time? So today, we're going to be in John 21, verses 15 through 19. So go ahead and jump there if you can in your... Bible, John 21. And as you're going there, um, as a refresher, you know, we've looked at Jesus and his encounter with Thomas. We've also looked at, Corey looked at last week, uh, Jesus and the disciples on the Emmaus Road. And uh, today, we're going to look at Jesus and Peter. So John 21, starting in verse Is everyone there? Is everyone on their way there? (laughs) Fantastic. Hear the word of the Lord. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time, he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, Peter was hurt, or Peter was grieved that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. Then Jesus told him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord. Holy Spirit, would you reveal yourself to the hearts and minds of those in this room? Would we as a people bring all of ourselves to you today? Would we be reminded that we gather not just to see a friend not just to hear a talk or to sing some songs, but we do this as a way of reminder of the story that we find ourselves in. And with the challenges of life, when we bind ourselves together around that story, we are able to be anchored and grounded and experience a level of peace in the midst of chaos. We Thank you, Jesus. And we're grateful that you are alive. Speak now through me. In Jesus' name, we pray. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Just over the last couple of weeks, I have had quite the revelation in looking at these various characters and episodes regarding Jesus after his resurrection. And here's what I've come to realize in looking at this more intently the way in which Jesus maneuvers himself around his disciples in this period of time, this 40 day period, this one month essentially. Is deeply therapeutic and restorative. Deeply therapeutic and restorative. There is, if you look into it, a lot of inner turmoil, confusion, and unrest that he is entering into. I think sometimes we get so caught up in the celebration of the resurrection, which is amazing, that we forget there's a lot of turmoil in these few weeks. There's a lot of unrest, there's a lot of confusion, there's a lot of chaos. The disciples constantly lock themselves into a room hiding in fear. Women encounter an empty tomb, and the text says that they were trembling when they left, and then the disciples didn't trust their witness. Thomas, as we talked about, wrestles with doubt and unbelief. The disciples on the Emmaus Road, as Corey articulated last week, are hopeless. Judas, by the way, has committed suicide. Someone they have spent three and a half years with. A close confidant, a friend, a partner. He's committed suicide. And now we get to look at Peter. The character that really exhibits the human condition in so many different ways and his apparent shame. Fear, hiding, trembling, dismissal, doubt, confusion, hopelessness, and even suicide. I would say to you today that there's a lot of turmoil in the world that Jesus is entering into as a resurrected Savior. And other than Judas's suicide, these are all experiences that happened and emotions after the empty tomb. Not before it, after. So, what does this tell me? What does this tell us? This tells me that just because the tomb is empty does not mean life gets easier. Just because the the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive, does not at all mean that life gets easier. In fact, I would say to you today that it may get even harder. It may get even more challenging. Yet in all of these instances of various emotions and experiences, Jesus, who is the risen king of the cosmos and has defeated death, sin, and the grave, begins his work of healing, restoring, and renewing the human heart. Jesus had a ministry of healing and had been touching people physically and seeing them healed. But now, after the resurrection, he begins his work of inner healing, inner restoration, and the renewal of the human heart, the executive center of the person, climaxing in this encounter with good old Peter. So let's set the stage. I want to kind of look at what's happened before the breakfast to give you kind of context. So at this point, the disciples are back in Galilee. They're no longer in Jerusalem. They're back in, in Galilee. It just The text just says sometime later. We don't know how much time has passed since the encounter with Thomas. But they're in the Sea of Galilee hanging out, and uh, Peter, who, as we all know, was a fisherman for the majority of his life. He says to the disciples, there's just a few that are there, there's just seven. He says, I'm going to go fishing. I'm going fishing. And so he takes these disciples, because they're like, let's go fishing, I'll go with you. He takes them out on the boat into the Sea of Galilee, And they go fishing all night long, all night long. And they catch absolutely nothing. And then there's this random man on the beach who just yells out to them and says, throw the net on the other side of the boat. He's a professional fisherman. We haven't caught anything. Why not? Sure. Throws the net on the other side of the boat, and they catch so much fish, 153 to be exact. Scholars debate on what that number means, but that would be a waste of our time today. Just a lot of fish. It's a lot of fish. You can do some numerology if you want, but it's a waste of our time. We just know they caught a lot of fish. And then one of them is like, yo, that's the Lord. That's Jesus. And Peter just jumps right out of the boat and starts swimming to shore. And Jesus is on the beach. And he's got an IHOP catered, (laughs) sitting here with some French toast pancakes, some fish, some bread. And there's a fire going. And he's just sitting there all peaceful, right? He's like, come, let's let's eat together. That's kind of the, the backdrop to where we find ourselves today. Now, a few things that I want to draw our attention to before we even get into this famous conversation and what at first glance seems very awkward between Jesus and Peter. I want to draw our attention to a couple of things in this passage that struck me this past week. Um, First off, we need to keep in mind that this is the same Peter who just denied his association with Jesus a few weeks prior. He literally tells someone, I don't know the man. I don't know him. He was uh, persuaded by the mob, you might say, this herd instinct. He was sucked in, and he betrayed him. He denied Jesus even though he said he would never. What's fascinating if you read the story is that on the third time, Luke 22 says Jesus looked at him. Jesus looked at him. same Peter. In his greatest opportunity to show loyalty, he fails miserably. How many times have you had an opportunity to bring glory and honor to Jesus and you failed? or just in general, you had an opportunity with a job or with a family member or whatever it may be, with a friend, and you just drop the ball. He drops the ball at a cosmic scope. And he's remembered forever. The first thing that in this story that I want us to think about, that I just want to kind of pontificate, if we can, is... Peter takes them fishing at night. At night. That's what the text says. The text says in verse 3 of John 21, Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. We'll come too, they all said. So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. Now, what does that tell us? That tells us that this was not fishing for recreation and relaxation on your grandpa's pond down in Randolph County somewhere. This is not an afternoon with your uncle. All right? They're fishing to make money. Fishermen in this time period fished at night when they were trying to make a living because they wanted to be able to get to the markets at the first of dawn to provide all the fish that they had to sell to markets. And so they were out all night long, not just for some recreational purpose, just for relaxation. It was for making money. This was, in some sense, occupational for Peter. And oh, by the way, this was his former career, his former way of life. The thing that he left behind to follow Jesus in Luke 5, where the text literally says he dropped his nets. The disciples dropped their nets to follow Jesus. He's back there again. He's right back there again. The psychiatrist Kurt Thompson, who a lot of you know and love, um, which if you don't listen to his Being Known podcast, I'm just throwing a podcast out there for you guys to listen to. He cries on every episode. It's a joy. It really is. A man is, seems so kind from afar, you know. Um, but here's what he has to say about shame. Shame isn't just about feeling bad. It's about evil's intention to keep you from becoming what God wants you to become. Look at this. Shame causes us to be unable to imagine the future new thing Jesus wants to make with us. So our posture when we are in shame is usually I'm just going back to my old life. I'm going back to what I know. I'm going back to how things used to be because it's comfortable It's comfortable. Shame binds us to living in the past and connects us to a perpetual cycle of restlessness, disintegration, and emotional instability. Walking forward, friends, with your head turned backwards usually leads you into the wrong direction. If you do not believe me, test it in your car today and see how it works for you. As you're driving, just look backwards all the way down Battleground. And if you can hit Core Life for me, that'd be great. Because I don't like Core Life at all. I don't like it. I don't like it. (laughs) But my wife said, if you hit Freddy's, she's coming for you. He goes back to his old way of life. Some folks like to call this backsliding. You ever heard people talk about that? You backslid, right? You got any grandparents that talk about backsliding? Man, you're doing good until then. Peter's gone backwards. He's gone back to fishing as a vocation, as a calling, as an occupation. The one thing he left to follow Jesus, he's back there again. The second thing that Peter does in this moment, in the boat is that Peter covers himself, covers himself. This is what hit me the hardest this week. Verse seven, this is the CEB, the Common English Bible. When Simon Peter heard it was the Lord on the beach, he wrapped his coat around himself for he was naked. Okay, you know, fishing out on a boat in the dark all night long, but naked. I'm sensing some emotional distress here, potentially. (laughs) Potentially. Um, Not sure, but I'm just, we can talk about it. And he jumps into the water. Now, I I want us to know, it says that they were like roughly 50 yards out into the Sea of Galilee. The text alludes to this. 50 yards. Okay, this is is like the length of an Olympic-sized swimming pool. Peter's like, I'm not going to be in the boat. I'm going to just jump into the water, but I'm going to do it after I put my clothes on. That seems like a reversal of what you would do, does it not? Now, I don't think that Peter was totally physically naked, okay? The text even can be a little bit ambiguous. He probably had some sort of, like, you know, uh, board shorts on or something. I don't know. Um, He had on his billabong board shorts on the boat, chilling with the bros all night long. Um, but he does put more clothes on and then jumps in the water. What? Now, what I think we do here, and every every teaching I saw this week does this. Oh, man, it's Peter's devotion. He's like, I am changed. I'm coming for you, baby. That's my Lord and my God. I'm after him. Forget y'all, man. I'm not even helping with the fish. I'm jumping in the water. But I do think, actually, underneath this text could be, and I could be totally off in my hermeneutics and interpretation this week, which, by the way, every week, 90% of what I say is probably spot on, 10% maybe heresy, but you got to wrestle with that, not me. All right? I do think underneath this text is an immense amount of possible symbolism and metaphor for Peter's interior life even though that we automatically assume that this is a sign of devotion and zeal. Because when I read this and saw that he had been naked in the dark, I was a little disturbed, but I immediately went back to our primordial parents, Genesis 3 and another verse 7. This was John 21, 7, but in Genesis 3, 7, it says, at that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their, what? Nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to, what? Cover themselves. I couldn't stop making the parallel and the connection. Now, the word, used for naked in John 21 for the Peter passage, can also suggest to be without armor and shield or soul without body. So when Peter finds out that it's Jesus, he covers himself with armor and shield, so to speak. And he dives in after A part of me wonders if Peter is externally displaying devotion, but internally is actually hiding and trying to protect himself. And the only place where he could uh, lay himself bare, so to speak, was in the dark of his past life. I might be off but I don't know why we just assume in a matter of a few weeks after he's just denied the Christ that all of a sudden he is totally good to go. That's not how my life looks, anecdotally. A few weeks and he's good? I don't don't think so. Could it be that his performance of devotion externally is him trying to, in some ways, cover up the internal chaos and confusion and shame that he has felt for weeks and has eaten at him ever since. So I could be reading too much into this story, but I think there's something to this. There is internal dissonance for Peter and conflict that Peter must have with himself for betraying the one he promised that he never would. Remember, as I said, Peter promised, I will never. And it's been less than a month. Less than a month. And as I said, Jesus saw him do it, and Peter saw him. And the text says, if you go back to Luke chapter 22, or even Matthew 26, it says that Peter wept bitterly. Eugene Peterson, Peterson in the message says he cried and cried and cried. He uses the word cried three times to reiterate the sense of betrayal, shame, and guilt felt. Now, Jesus had appeared already once to Peter up until this point. He had as a resurrected king. But we don't know if they even really talked. All we know is they appeared. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about this. He appeared to Cephas in the 12. Corey mentioned last week in Luke chapter 24, it says that he had already appeared to Peter. But I don't know that they have an actual conversation yet. I don't know. It doesn't seem as though, given the context of this passage that we're looking at, I don't think they'd really ever talked. You ever had a moment in your life where there's someone you have hurt and you run into them in the grocery store or out in public, or there's that place that you used to always see each other, and you're like, I'm not going there anymore, because I might run into so-and-so. And And then we got to have a conversation. But Peter's on the boat, and he's like, crap, it's Jesus. All right, cool. Jesus, hey man, what's up? How you doing? You liar. Like, come on, man. Really? Really? I think that there is something that is to be said. Is my mic messing up again? What is this? Am too loud or something? I don't know. What is going on here? Okay. All right. Jesus is Lord. I just want all of all to know. Okay. Jesus is Lord. Uh-huh. I think we have to wrestle with that. Do do you think that Peter was actually covering up some internal dissonance? Because I think that the physical cover-up is in some ways representative of soul cover-up. Shame inhibits us from opening ourselves up totally to God And to others. Because we aren't only afraid of what they might find, but what we might find as well. Making it pretty easy for us to put on a front. All of us have closets. That not only do you not want those you are in close proximity to go into, you don't want to go there either. because of what you might find. Now, we can live in denial, and we do that. There was a season of my life, I lived in total denial. It took someone else going, hey, man, you got some dirt in that corner over there. So what do we do? We cover up. You know, what is the, what is the first thing a child does when they scrape their knee and get a boo-boo? They usually cover it up and say, don't touch it right? They get a boo-boo on their knee, their elbow, don't touch it. Don't touch it. But once they get a cute little band-aid, they want to show it off. Look at my band-aid. It's Paw Patrol. Check it out. You don't have a band-aid, but I do. And you got a wound too, little buddy. We joke and laugh, but why do we assume that we don't do the same thing as adults? When you get a wound, your natural inclination is to cover it up, and then you mask it with something so, like, so pretty, and then you show it off. That's good preaching, I'm just saying. That's good, <laughs> that's good. What are those things in your life you know, we get so comfortable with these questions like, how are you doing? I'm good. Okay. The end. <laughs> Sometimes we might need to poke and prod a little bit. Let's go to the closet. Um, nope. Mm-mm. No, no, no. No, it's okay. If you come to our house and it's really, really clean, I just want y'all to know, the closets aren't... <laughs> The bedroom is not. You ever clean for folks in your house They come over for dinner and then afterwards people leave and then you go open the door to your bedroom and there's like a, a this, this wave of like stench, woof, that hits you. You're like, whoa, man, what is that? You know? Is this the 80s carpet or is this just B.O. or like breath that's just been caught up in the bedroom? I don't know. This is gross. We have closets in our life. Where well, there is stench, man. And some of us aren't even aware because we've spent so much time away from the closet. Or we've put something in front of it so no one can go into it. We put a chest of drawers in front of the closet. No one's going in there, man. I don't want you to see, and I don't want to see either. Don't ask me too many questions, man. I've been there before. I've been there before. I found this fascinating that the etymology of the English word shame can actually be traced back to mean to cover. Or even in the Middle English, the medieval period, nakedness. In regards to something being exposed. So Peter covers himself up and he heads to the shore. How many of us can resonate? External devotion, internal dissonance. External worship, internal shame. External trust, internal control. We can play the game. And as he approaches the shore... There is one detail and connection point in Peter's development that brings itself full circle. Not only does Jesus have a meal, a spread, already prepared. The text says he's already got fish. I don't even need your 153. I've got them. They're grilling. We're here. We're having a meal. He's already got one prepared, but he's also made a fire. He's got a bonfire on the beach. I've got a picture for us just to kind of go there visually, okay, for all the visual people. All right, here we are. All right, the sun's coming up. It's at, it's at like, daybreak. Jesus has just got a fire going on the beach. The night that Jesus was denied by Peter, Peter is in the high priest's courtyard hanging out with some other folks around a fire. Now, if there's one thing that we know about a fire, fires have a scent. And smoke tends to stay in your clothes. Does anybody like that smell? The bonfire smell? That's what I call it. Flannel and the smoke from a bonfire. It smells great. smells like November. I love it. But it stays around, doesn't it? Even where we live now, I go outside. Sometimes I'm like, well, my neighbor's got a uh, brush pile. He's burning some... uh, Sticks and twigs and, you know, wood or whatever, I guess. It's got a smell. And uh, for me, I imagine Peter coming up on shore and all this devotion and zeal. And he smells the burning coals. And he goes right back to a few weeks ago to the fire in the high priest's courtyard. And he begins to have flashbacks. And there's a good chance he's triggered. There are things in our life, signs, people, places, in themselves, good, but they're triggering for us. They bring up dissonant memories, deformative memories, to a point where we like stay away. And Jesus is right there beside the one thing that points back to Peter's denial. However, this moment would be the counterbalance and in some ways the turning point in his story. But it doesn't make it any easier. In some ways, I think, and I hope this is helpful, the fire that burned us in our past could be the place where Jesus wants to meet us and commune with us. And I believe that it is the place where our healing actually begins. Jesus doesn't just point at the one thing that symbolized or reminded Peter of his disloyalty. He sits beside it and asks Peter to sit with the other disciples around it. Imagine the one thing in your life that is the most triggering for you where you've hurt someone or someone's hurt you And Jesus sits right beside it and says, come on, let's have a meal together. Can we just burn the fire out and enjoy the fish? I don't want, no, no. He sits by this fire and invites him to come sit with him. Many of us in our life could possibly be lacking intimacy and even commitment to Jesus of Nazareth because he is standing where our deepest wound is. Or the area of our deepest regret that we're trying to forget, but it haunts you. It haunts you. The place of your deepest shame. And to get close to him is to get close to the area of our deepest pain, brokenness, and our sickness. As I said, Jesus functions therapeutically. Jesus heals. Come on, Jesus heals. He's the great physician. He is healing all things. The very idea of salvation is therapeutic. He is healing and restoring. But often, to see a physician is also to see our sickness and disease. He reveals, by the way, Jesus reveals the cat skin. He reveals the diagnosis. If he's the great physician, he has to. He delivers the report. Knocks on the door of your little room in the hospital or the doctor's office. And you're in your mind, you're like, oh, God, here we go. Comes in with a little manila folder. Oh, God. Sits down. Um, it looks like it's cancer. It's cancer. I didn't want it to be cancer. <laughs> what? I thought I was good, doc. Like, I thought I was, I've been exercising, been doing my, doing my thing, you know? He's like, I'm sorry, it's cancer. Doctors have a tough job to deliver news. But here's, here's the difference in Jesus between himself and any other medical doctor. Is he doesn't just say you can or, or can't or won't be healed. Because some doctors are like, it's terminal, man. He just says, Do you want to be healed? Do you want, do you want to be healed? You got cancer, man. You got disease. It's eating away at your inner being. And he says to you and I, do you want to be healed? Not just when you're 12 in youth group, you're 35. And he's like, do you want to be healed? You're 65, 70 years old, and you've got all of this built up shame and guilt and sickness. And he looks at you and he says, do you want to be healed? For Peter, his healing process and what scholars call his restoration or his reinstatement starts with one question on the beach with Jesus asked three different times. Again, to counterbalance the three times he denied Jesus weeks prior. A very simple but pointed question. In the company of the others, keynote. We always like to assume they took a walk down the beach, just the two of them. It doesn't say that. It does not say that. It's with the others. And he just asks a simple question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Notice he doesn't call him Peter. Peter. He calls him Simon, son of John. In other words, with your shame and your life and your brokenness, not just for yourself, but your entire family lineage, your genogram's a wreck, man. Simon, son of John, with all of that, do you love me? Simple question, but very Pointed. Now, I mentioned a couple weeks ago that Jesus was asked 187 questions in the gospel story, and he directly answers only two. But what you might not have known is that Jesus himself asks 307 questions. This, I think, being the bedrock of them all. Do you love me? He asks questions of desire. He asks questions of aim and telos and focus. He asks questions around healing. Physical healing. Here, he asks a very straightforward question. Some of his questions are like, How do I respond to that? That's very uh, philosophical in nature. He does not, he's not getting philosophical here. Straight yes or no question. There's no gray. We love gray. And gray is needed. There's a need for nuance, but not in this question. There is no nuance. There is no gray. It's not philosophical. It's not complex. He just says, do you love me? Do you love me? Now, Jesus didn't ask Peter, are you sorry? I would be. I would hit that joker in the face. Seriously. You know, there's people in your life. If you saw them right now, you would be tempted to go after that joker. Right? Jesus is like, he's not saying, are you sorry? He just says, do you love me? He doesn't even ask the question, will you promise never to do that again? He doesn't even demand allegiance. He just asks a question. Do you love me? Now, like a great therapist, and Jesus is, Jesus is helping Peter with self-examination and self-awareness. He's like, let's go inward. Let's go into the closet. Peter needed to hear himself say, you know I love you. I think Peter needed to hear that. Peter needed to say what was actually real and what was true and repeat it to himself in the midst of his shame. In front of the one whom he hurt whom he damaged, whom he harmed. He needed to hear himself say, you know I love you. And he had to repeat it to himself a few times. Now Jesus doesn't go for the head here. He doesn't go for the intellect. He's not going for proper doctrine or proper knowledge regarding the historical creeds of the church and orthodoxy. It's well and good. But what he does go for is he goes for the heart and the will the heart and the will at this point in the the journey of peter it isn't so much that jesus is asking the question peter do you want me we're kind of past that but rather peter do you choose me do you choose me because to love is to choose it is an action Hey, Peter, in your brokenness and in your shame and in what you did to me three weeks ago, do you choose me now? In your remorse, do you choose me? Now, he uses both agape or sacrificial love as well as philea or mutual affection uh, type of love in his question. It's very interesting. There's a lot of debate on why. But again, I'm not going to pontificate about that right now. The question still remains, do you love me? He asks him three times, will you sacrifice for me? Will you be close to me? That's all he's asking. And Peter simply responds with what? Yes. (laughs) So much can be unpacked around the word yes. Much of the Christian journey and discipleship with Jesus is nothing but saying yes to God. Yes. Yes. But after each question that Jesus asks, Jesus also gives a directive or an imperative. He doesn't just say, do you love me? Do you love me? He gives Peter work to do. You might go to a therapist that gives you a lot of work, and you're like, nah, I'm not trying to do any homework, man. To be honest, I'm here just to talk, and I just want you to listen, okay? My my therapist is a straight shooter. He's like, do the work you're not going to be healed. I'm like, dang it, man. Jesus gives Peter some work to do here. He says, feed and care for my sheep. Interesting. He's going inward and outward at the same time. Man, Jesus is the master of paradox. Some of us would be like, you know what? We just need to kind of wait it out for a few months, maybe a few years. Jesus is like... Do you love me? Feed my sheep. What? Me? Really? By way of forgiveness, Jesus gives Peter a job. This is his way of of, of revealing forgiveness. His commission is a reminder constantly, I think, for Peter of forgiveness. Every time Peter's caring for his sheep, over the next few decades, up to his death, I think he's reminded of this moment and the forgiveness, the generosity of Jesus, because he gave him a commission as a way of forgiveness. Peter's shame is met with not only a question of introspection, but also work and vocation and calling, a task. So it seems to me, and I don't think it's prescriptive necessarily, but just reading this and looking at the rhythm of Jesus, it seems to me that one way for us, for you, for I, to work through our shame is to do what Jesus asks, to get to work. It's not denial. It's not repression. Acknowledge it. And in your acknowledgement, work. Work through it. He gives him a vocation, and he's quick to let Peter know that these are my sheep, not yours. Now, the final command ends up being for Peter his uh, his original command that Jesus gave him, which is what: follow me. Here we are again. Jesus stopped saying "follow me." <laughs> he just keeps saying. It. Follow me. And it's this command that I think Jesus does reveal his philosophical brilliance. Why is that? Because our heart, friends, your heart is what gives direction to your life. Your heart and your love is what gives direction to your life. The orientation of our heart is the way that we actually go in life. Whatever our love is ultimately pointed at is what we go after and pursue. We move in the way of our will, so to speak. Quite literally, where there is a will, there is also a way. Where our love is, there is our Lord. And here's where Jesus is utterly brilliant. The first question was, do you love me? But in particular, do you love me more than these? This was him asking Peter, not just do you love me, but am I your ultimate love? Am I your deepest love? Is your love for me top priority? Is it the foundation? Am I the one you are ultimately following? Now, we don't know if he's referring to the fish here, to the disciples in comparison or what. He just says, do you love me more than these? Am I the foundation of your direction in life? If yes, then follow me because we follow in the way of the object of our loves. You love money, you're going after it. If you love family, you're going after it ultimately. If you love to be a workaholic, you're going after it. If you love sensation from sexual activity, you're going after it. If you love fame and recognition, you're going after it. St. Clair of Assisi famously said, we become what we love and who we love shapes what we become. If we love things, we become a thing. If we love nothing, we become nothing. If we ultimately love money, we become greedy. If we ultimately love our family, we love we end up loving control. If we ultimately love sexual activity, we end up dehumanizing If we ultimately love the way in which we portray ourselves, then we end up becoming a liar. We become what we love. Um, in the middle of the 20th century, a missiologist and anthropologist by the name of Paul Hebert developed what is referred to as set theory. Um, It's a way to consider groupings of people. And in this theory, there are two kind of models, centered set theory and bounded set theory, as it pertains to values and um, communities across the world. Now, bounded set theory is primarily asking the question of what can't I do? For a lot of us, this is the way we approach Jesus. What can't I do? Centered set theory is the question, what do I ultimately love Bounded set says, where do we draw the line? Centered set theory says, what direction am I facing? The lines that are created in in a bounded set way of living are based on certain beliefs and doctrines that we make hard boundaries. But if we're not careful, the center is very soft with no reference point but the lines that are created in a a centered set way of living and in a community that's centered set focus, the lines are created based on the individual's direction toward the center as the reference point. It's not simply in or out. And I think what Jesus is asking Peter is, am I the reference point in your life? Am I centered in your life? We're good at drawing boundaries, and we need some. But the reality is when he's asking the question, do you love me? It's a question of direction. And as a reference point, am I the central organizing principle of your life? Or is it something else? That is the question he seems to be asking. This question is not so much a question about knowledge or even beliefs, but about what is central. It's about worship. What is it that anchors us? And I think that Jesus has looked in the face of someone who's a lot like us and asked the question, am I central to your life? If yes, let me direct you. Mildred Banks Wine Coop says to love God sets the soul in the right direction, the satisfying direction. In the biblical and Hebraic sense, it is the deepest motivational focus of personality. It is that centering, organizing principle which gives direction To life, who or what you love directs which direction you are heading and where you are going. This means that living in such a way where we are constantly able to, in our shame and brokenness, in the face of the one that we betrayed, as he looks at us and says, do you love me? We simply respond over and over again with yes. It's not a static moment. Peter still struggles. Go read Acts. Up and down. But he ends up giving himself totally for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of a resurrected Jesus because he says yes over and over and over again. It is not just saying yes in a holistic sense, but we have to examine every dimension of our life and say, Am I saying yes to God in my finances? Am I saying yes to God in my relationships? Am I saying yes to God? when it comes to the people of God? Am I saying yes to God with my children? Am I saying yes to God with my sexuality? Am I saying yes to God with my desires? Am I saying yes to God with my work and my vocation? Where am I not saying yes to God? Where is there dissonance? Because if there's dissonance, there's disintegration. And what we want is wholeness, completeness. And there's no other question that uncovers, reveals, and exposes more And do you love me? I'm gonna have the band come up. We're gonna enter into a time of response as we move to the table. But I was just, I don't know, man, in my own time preparing for this week, deeply struck with this simple question, do you love me? And I think if I'm honest today, some of us have not probably used that as a question of examination in a long time. It's a simple question, but man, is it direct. Because when you say yes to something, that means you're saying no to something else. Because when you say yes to your kids, that means no to your life. (laughs) When you say yes to work, that probably means no to the family meal. (laughs) When you say yes to hanging out with friends, you're saying no to something else. When you say yes to one job, you're saying no to another. When we say yes to God, we're saying no to something else. And we think about the nature of the centered set theory. What is happening in our society is the, uh, the proliferation of self-centeredness. And when we say yes to God, we switch places. He becomes the central organizing aspect of our entire being. And he's asking us that question today, honestly, man. I don't care if you're 11 years old or you're 30 or 50 or 70 or 90 years old. Do you love me? Peter's got a crazy story. Crazy story that we can all look at and go, man, that's very similar to me. And Jesus is constantly like, don't forget about Peter. Remember Peter? Peter? I love this from from Jackie Hill Perry. She says, how we are now doesn't have to determine how we will finish. You get a chance today to reorient your direction just by saying, I love you, Lord. Coming to the table is an act of repentance. It's not a formality. It's not sentimentality. It is actually meant to reorient your heart and the direction of your will Will you love Jesus? And you can only love him because he's loved you. He's looked at you and he has said, I love you. Do you love me? So my question for us today is some of us have said yes, holistically, but where in your life do you still say no? We all have got things in our life. I've got things. Where is there shame in your life that needs to be brought into the light? or you did that one thing that you don't want anybody to know about because you're afraid what might happen if they know. You will be in bondage until that comes to light. And even now, some of you are like, probably a little anxious at that. But Jesus is sitting by the fire. He's sitting by the thing that represents your deepest brokenness and pain and says, if you wanna follow me, come sit by the fire. So where's their shame? Where is their disintegration? Would you meet Jesus there?